What's it like to be the spouse of a U.S. ambassador? If you're Bob Satterwake, it involves breaking protocol in more than one way. Stay tuned for Good God and Bob's Story. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome to the program today my friend Bob Satterwake. Bob, How good you to doing, have you George? with us. Great to Great. be here. I'm, I'm going to hold the book up here and, and mention that you have written this book called Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. And we're going to get into some of the protocol and diplomacy aspect of it later in our conversation. But this book actually uh, talks about your path generally too, and that is it takes us back to your childhood and to uh, how things emerged for you along the way. And I found that to be at times heartbreaking, uh, in fact, uh, that I think this is a story that's important to understand the rest of your story also. So. You and I have been friends for several years now, and you're a member of our church, you and your husband Wally, but getting to the point where you would be a married gay man in a Baptist church is an extraordinary thing based on where you grew up and how that happened. Tell a little bit about what it was like to grow up in rural Oklahoma sure. as a, a, a young uh, Native American, um, poor uh, gay man yep. in a culture that didn't really foster and nourish your identity as such, huh? Yeah, well, um, interesting. You you put it like that. It sounds like it's a whole other book, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah. uh, we'll have to think. But a lot of it is in that first part. A lot of it's, yeah. a lot of it's yeah. in there. Um, so I, I grew up not unlike um, a lot of rural kids grew up in, in that uh, general area of the country, and uh, that is with uh, uh, with families that you know lived day to day. Yes. Um, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Right. And uh, in a somewhat um, unsophisticated public education system that didn't mm -hmm. get a lot of attention from mm -hmm. um, the more elite areas of the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, um, you know, growing up in that environment where regardless of who you were, there was no anonymity right. uh, because it was a very small place mm -hmm. and everybody did know everybody. It was mm -hmm. one of those small towns, again, not unlike the thousands of small towns in this, in this entire country where people grow up uh, without any anonymity and somewhat in the spotlight of their community, if right. you will. So I, um, there, were, there were things that are obviously very good about those environments. Uh, being insulated is not always a negative thing. Right. Um, it, can, it can bring some very positive attributes and uh, your community can rally around those in need in, I mm -hmm. think, a much more efficient and mm -hmm. effective way at mm -hmm. times. Right. Because uh, you know everybody, right? Because I mean, you know it's, everybody. It's, it's like a family and a big extended family. It, it, it is. It is. And just like big extended families, we also have our challenges. It can and be dysfunctional. It can be a little dysfunctional. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and, and unfortunately, I look back on that. I say unfortunately because um, it did have some 
impact in the path in, in life and uh, in, in which I traveled, mm -hmm. and uh, and the and the choices that were available to me yes. as a young person, mm -hmm. uh, I did not have. Uh, the types of choices and exposure to global education that right. someone growing up in a big city like even Dallas would mm -hmm. have had at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, I was, uh, I grew up going to church mm -hmm. and uh, a Southern Baptist church. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a focal point I think for a lot of community activity, yes. whether it was, well, I only knew of three religions mm -hmm. when I was growing up, mm -hmm. uh, Southern Baptist, Catholic, and Jehovah's Witness. Yes. That, those were the only three religions I knew. Right, right. And um, I, I didn't even know others existed, honestly, until it may be even adulthood, to right. be quite honest about it. Mm -hmm. I, I think I learned of the Mormon faith in college, not mm -hmm. really truly understanding sure. what that was. And, um, but beyond that, I had no idea about right. global faith yes. and, and, and Buddhism and Muslims and Jewish people and, and sure. Jewish religion and the Jewish right. faith. I, I knew none of those things. We weren't exposed to that type of thing. Um, with that said, I'm not saying that that was necessarily, that lack of exposure was negative. Right. We were relatively, from a faith community, I would say that people were relatively kind. Mm -hmm. I never, uh, as a young man, never heard, ever heard the church speak of homosexuality. Right. Um, and I think primarily because we, again, that insulation of being mm -hmm. not exposed to that. Right. Now, young kids in school mm -hmm. and my, uh, my bullies in school right. certainly had heard about these things. Well, and you were bullied in school. I was. Yeah. And to the point where you actually changed schools uh, because of it. I had to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, when you that take- That was a rough time. What you take away from uh, that experience, uh, is, it, is it related more, would you say, to your um, Native American identity, to your being gay, uh, how, to you, your- not fitting in in other ways, what would you say about that? So I think it was a combination of our economic position in the mm -hmm. community and my uh, the perception of my fellow classmates of being a gay man. Okay. Uh, and I say perception because at the time, um, though I may have had uh, conflicting feelings Mm -hmm. or or not the same feelings toward young girls that my fellow classmates were having at that time. Mm -hmm. I certainly had no idea what homosexuality was or what that meant. Um, so in a way, your classmates told you who you were almost before you fully understood it yourself. Long before. Isn't that interesting? Long before. Yeah. Um, and I do think there is some relevance to that. Yeah. I do think that young people are very perceptive yes. of the differences between themselves right. and, mm -hmm. and, and their fellow friends of, the, of right. similar age. Mm -hmm. I'm no child expert, but mm -hmm. I was a child at one time, and yeah. that certainly was my experience. So, so the pain of rejection of your peers uh, led you to 
move to your uncle's house, right? This and, is true, yeah. And, and, and go to another school where they didn't know you. That's correct. What was, what was that like in your family for that to happen? You know, I, it's interesting. I've never, had, um, I've never had the discussion with my mom and dad beyond the time that all this took place. Mm -hmm. um, my reflection and what I write about in the book was uh, obviously it was a very um, strained time yes. within our family, mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't particularly remember it being strained specifically because I needed to leave the okay. town where I was living. Right. Um, I think at looking back on it as an adult now um, and realizing that I really was going from one very uh, emotional environment into another very emotional environment, mm -hmm. but being unaware that the environment I was going into was so, that emotional. So how did you come <coughs> to a deeper awareness of your sexual orientation? Uh, when were you able to embrace that and to say, you know, this is just who I am and I'm, I'm, I'm going to accept it as such? So, Awareness and embracement is would be two different things yeah. entirely. Okay. Um, I certainly became aware of it uh, in college. Okay. Uh, that I was a homosexual and that uh, I was struggling through the comfort levels of that. Mm -hmm. um, in college, I was the first time in my life that I was exposed openly to other gay people. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm, I, had, I did not befriend them. Mm -hmm. I certainly understood somewhere in the core of my being that they were human beings the same as everybody else and deserved right. the same uh, treatment uh, and access to all of the uh, uh, college environment and experiences that I had access to. Right. And, and we even had those challenges on campus. Sure. Um, and this was a big state school. It was, about. University yes. of Oklahoma. Right. And I remember specifically there being uh, a debate mm -hmm. in the student government whether or not the, uh, at the time, the gay group, I don't even think they called them gay. I'm trying to remember, honestly. I don't right. know what they called them, right. to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Um, but the homosexual group mm -hmm. uh, on campus, one, could they even be officially recognized? Right. That was one debate. And I think the debate around that was if they were officially, officially recognized, then they would be entitled mm -hmm. to funds from student government for right, the organization right. and access to meeting spaces sure. and things of that nature. And I remember this being a, a very contentious debate in, in, in student government. And, right. and the whole time my question was, what, why is everybody so up in arms about this? Right. Um, I didn't have the wherewithal to really understand why I was thinking that way, mm -hmm. but I knew that they were humans too, and they certainly, that was their school as well, and I just felt like, well, they should have access to that. And I think maybe part of it was I knew intimately what it was like to be rejected. Sure, sure. From my... So fast forward days. to Dallas because <coughs> you eventually moved to Dallas. Now you're flying for American Airlines. That's correct. I uh, did as as a flight attendant, mm -hmm. and you are living in Oaklawn, right or thereabouts. Right, right. And so you find yourself now in a gay-friendly environment. 
So I think people don't fully understand how helpful it is to acceptance to be actually in a community where there are others like you and you can just more or less be right. yourself, right? Was that a big factor in your being able to uh, accept who you were? And, and because I know you met Wally during that period of time as well. True, yeah, so in 1988 when I moved to Oak Lawn, um, it's interesting you use the term, it was a gay-friendly environment. It wasn't a gay-friendly environment. Okay. It was a community of gay people. Okay. Right. And a community of gay people that literally had come together, right. not unlike other gay communities all across this country, right. for the same purposes as a lot of small towns restrict growth. Yes. And that is they want to be insulated from the rest of the world. I see, yes. For protection purposes. Yes. And where they can, you know, have communication with their neighbor and not feel like they're going to get their house burned down right. because of who they are and who right. they love. Right. So, you know, that was a di Oak Lawn in 1988 was a very different Oak Lawn than right. it is today. Right, right. But to answer your question, yes, it allowed me to realize for the really for the very first time that not only was I not a really uh, a minority, but I was part of a really large minority. Okay, and that helps to have the sense of numbers, the sense that I'm, I'm not really an, uh, so strange here in the world, but I have a sense of community with others who are making their way in a healthier way than I, I might have, have wondered. So you meet Wally in Dallas, yep. and you begin a life together, and eventually move to Chicago where uh, you get into the real estate business and Wally is in business as well. And you begin to get involved in uh, LGBT uh, kind of advocacy work as well. And this leads eventually to your support of the Obama campaign and to your leading a national uh, democratic uh, LGBT group. And, uh, and ultimately this is gonna take us, uh, I'm fast forwarding the story, but it's gonna sure. take us uh, all the way up to uh, you and Wally uh, becoming intimately involved in the diplomatic process that leads to Wally being appointed as ambassador of the United States to the Dominican Republic. What a remarkable leap that is in just a few years together, right? It was a pretty remarkable leap. It really all took place uh, over the course of about a 10 year period, really. Yeah. And um, it was not accidental. Yes. Uh, it was definitely very directed mm -hmm. and intended. Uh, fortunately, the outcome proved to be fruitful. Yes. Uh, hence, I guess that's why we're sitting here now. Right. But um, uh, it, yeah, it was a great it was a great experience all the way around, as well as um, life life changed dramatically overnight from literally moving from Dallas to Chicago. Yes. Life's just changed overnight. Right. And uh, it's amazing what exposure to different communities sure. and uh, and I've had the good fortune over the years of having traveled now to 72 countries wow. and experiencing what globalization truly is and, the, and having the opportunity to have had that educational experience. Right. Uh, I've always learned a little something from every community in which I've engaged with uh, through the course of my travels, whether vacation or other types of travel. Sure. So let's hold that thought because I want to come back and speak specifically to the diplomatic 
period in the Dominican Republic and what you learned from that. We're going to take a break and be right back. Okay. okay. Sounds All good. Right. Great. The Good God Program is a project of Faith Commons, a nonprofit organization I founded in 2018 to help promote the common good. Doing public theology across faith traditions and across racial and ethnic lines is an important thing today in our communities. We hope you'll continue to enjoy Good God, but look at some of the other things we're doing also through Faith Commons at www.faithcommons.org. We're back with Bob Satterwake, the author of Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy. And Bob, uh, we just in the first segment of our conversation, we got all the way up to your uh, being appointed as the spouse. Uh, eventually, you and Wally got married and Wally Brewster, your husband, was appointed uh, and confirmed by the U.S. Senate to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Dominican Republic. And this was in early uh, 2013 uh, that you went to the DR. And of course, when you got there as a married gay couple to a traditional uh, Catholic country, they opened their arms and welcomed you unabashedly. Is that right? <laughs> uh, well, I guess it depends on whose perspective you're looking at Right, I think you're you tell the story in the, in the book. That's <laughs> part of what breaking protocol really was about. Right. Not because you intended to, but because the tradition of that culture and its um, the, the relationship between the leaders of the Catholic Church and the uh, country's political leaders, uh, this was not a really welcome uh, development for them, was it? Certainly not for the leaders of the Catholic Church, right. and specifically uh, the cardinal uh, mm -hmm. of the Catholic Church in the Dominican Republic, who is an extremely influential cardinal in yes. the Western Hemisphere. Right. The uh, historically, there's a, there's a lot mm -hmm. of detail that I could go into, sure, but sure. for the purposes of this conversation, right. let's just say he is one of the most influential cardinals, right. or was, I should say, was. at the time. Right. He is no longer the cardinal. But um, yeah, he was not welcoming with open mm -hmm. arms. In fact, he took extreme measures to do everything possible to prohibit my husband from actually uh, getting his appointment and confirmation. Right. Right. Uh, but fortunately, um, the government of the Dominican Republic, even though certainly uh, engaged quite intimately on many levels with the Catholic Church, did stand firm on diplomatic protocols and accepted Good. my husband's appointment. And yet you experienced again a, a feeling of persecution from the church. And when I say the Catholic church, but nonetheless, it was the Christian church. And so here you were someone who grew up a Southern Baptist and who has uh, maintained a, a commitment to your Christian faith as, as well as your husband, Wally. And you find yourself being held in contempt by the people who also follow Christ. It was uh, continually a, a challenge, I'm sure, to maintain your own spiritual identity through all of this, hasn't it been? It, it was. It, it was difficult to maintain your spiritual identity from 
a public persona, yes. I would say. Mm. Um, you know, my husband and I have had this conversation many times, and we never questioned our own mm -hmm. spiritual um, journey through all of this, and we certainly never questioned our own faith mm -hmm. in God. Right. So with that said, there was a lot of comfort that was provided mm -hmm. to both of us mm -hmm. uh, through our own faith, our own beliefs, mm -hmm. and from those around us who were fellow Christians and mm -hmm. were quite vocal yes. about the activities of this particular leader within the right. Christian community. Uh, the Yeah, I mean, we can... I, I am quite frank in the book. Yes, you are. About my um, perception of, of the motives behind what right. those particular individuals were trying to accomplish. Um, and I believe I say something along the lines of that, uh, you know, not all poor people are bad people. Right. And not all people who call themselves Christians are believers and followers of God. Right, right. Well, so that's part of the challenge that you had in the Dominican Republic. But another part of it also was just uh, coming to grips with the fact that you were a male spouse of a male diplomatic uh, leader, uh, the, the, uh, the ambassador, and all the protocols that were yeah. deeply in place for spouses were oriented toward a wife. They not weren't a oriented. Yeah, they, they were, were developed. Yes. They were right. protocol around the whole protocol. Right. Was the fact that these roles were women. Yes. And they were defined by very archaic measures right. of what a woman is to a man, right. of what a wife is to a husband. Yes. And obviously, there not only was there just no place for a male spouse, certainly a gay male spouse, but there certainly was no place for a male spouse, even a straight male spouse. Right, so, so this, <clears throat> this is not about, uh, about just the fact that you were a gay couple, but it's it's just uh, breaking protocol wasn't a choice you made. It was just the the way it had to happen. There was a there were adjustments that needed to be made. There was sort of innovating and 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 figuring out how you would make your way. When could you be with your partner in certain diplomatic places? Where were you prohibited from being? How would you use U.S. money for this and personal money for that? And you know, it, it was it was a constant negotiation, wasn't it? It was it was a constant three and yeah. a half year negotiation. Yes. And what's interesting about that is if the uh, the leader of the the church mm -hmm. had the Catholic Church, I should say, had had his way. Yes. I would never have left the house. Right. And he is much told my husband that that should be the case. Right. Uh, he met with him within the first uh, two weeks of us arriving in the country, mm -hmm. um, attempting, I think, on some levels to explain the lack of appropriate reception from his boss, the mm -hmm. cardinal, uh, about our, our 
entry into this diplomatic community. Right. And then I'm trying to be diplomatic. Here. I, you understand? I understand. Well, you are diplomat. You're you a dipl diplomat. Yes. <laughs> um, and and but he told him just straight mm -hmm. up that your husband should should live behind the walls of the embassy uh, in this residence and should not be seen in public with you. Mm -hmm. And if if you were to abide by this advice, I think things will go well for you. Yeah. Uh, however, things could get difficult mm -hmm. if if you choose otherwise. So one of the things I think people don't understand about uh, an ambassador role is, well, first of all, there are two kinds of ambassadors, right? There are career ambassadors that work for the government and are uh, sometimes moved around to different countries. And then there are political appointees that are ambassadors, and you fall into this category, Wally right. was. And even when I say you did, part of the story of this book is, is, is another protocol challenge, and that is uh, Wally was the ambassador. There's no official role for a spouse. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's one that needs to be sort of made up, but you're always sort of in the shadows. Are you part of this diplomatic team, or is it really just the ambassador? And that was a hard thing for you to figure out as well, wasn't it? Well, I think the, the definition behind that, and it is very difficult to figure out, but the definition behind that is it all depends on who you work for. Yes. My husband worked for Barack Obama. So mm -hmm. in our scenario, when we were, when he was confirmed and mm -hmm. sworn in by the vice president, we were told at that point that you are a team. Mm -hmm. um, your husband, Mr. Ambassador, will have diplomatic credentials yes. and you are a team and you are to do this mm -hmm. work together. Yes. And so we set out to do that. Uh, look, at the end of the day, we did have to make up our own rules. Yes. Uh, it wasn't just within, it wasn't just local culture that I think at times were questioned motives and, right. and rightfully so because mm -hmm. they had never been exposed to uh, this particular set of circumstances. But then the other we f challenges we faced were within our own state department who up, you know, until as, as recent as the 1970s, mm -hmm. actually evaluated an ambassador's performance on his wife's ability to conduct a dinner party. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. you know, these, yeah. are, these are things right. that we're still to this day overcoming. Right. And, uh, this, and, and I will say this, I think it's fair to say that I had, uh, in the Obama administration, I reached out to many of my colleagues who were spouses of ambassadors who were men married to female ambassadors, yes. straight men with children. Yes. And trust me, their challenges and the roles in which they were restricted to were just as challenging for them on right. a different platform than the challenges that I faced as well. You know, Bob, as we, we wrap up our time together, I, I, I wanna go back to the title of your book, Breaking Protocol, because some of that was just that you were groundbreaking as a gay couple in this role. But some of it was chosen, and that is to say, you and Wally have, uh, have recognized that you have uh, a moment in history here where you find yourselves it, with political influence and uh, you've chosen to be active as activists to give hope to a generation to come, realizing that in many ways you have to endure some of the pain that you hope they won't. 
what would you say to people uh, about the uh, about the promise of taking on these challenges, the difficulties, but also the promise of it, and and why it's important sometimes to stand up and to be counted in situations like this? Yeah, there. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you will question whether you will question whether it is worth it. Um, I think ultimately you have to really truly ask yourself, what am I here for? Yes. Um, and ultimately for myself, and I and I feel pretty confident I can speak for my husband as well, and that is we're here for one thing, and that is the world should be left better than we found it. Yes. And we have a responsibility mm -hmm. to provide whatever uh, talents that we can mm -hmm. to support an initiative forward for people's lives to not have to endure the challenges that we Good. endured. Good. You know, Bob, as your pastor, it occurs to me uh, that um, part of our Christian faith is the, the willingness for us to follow in the example of Christ. And he was the one who was not willing to just uh, comply with the status quo, but he, uh, he himself took up his cross and was willing to sacrifice himself out of love for others. And we today are his followers not simply to reap the benefits of it, but also to share in his, in his uh, suffering and in his mission. And so I see you uh, having that kind of courage, uh, you and Wally continuing to blaze that, that trail. And I know that for generations to come, there will be people uh, who are grateful because of your uh, leadership in all of this. So thank you uh, for what you've done and for what you are doing. And we're looking forward to the next chapter in the Bob Sadowake and Wally Brewster story. Uh, but the book is Breaking Protocol, and I hope others will buy it and read it, and thank you for your contribution. Well, thank you, George. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Thanks, Bob. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God. Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.